0: I want to begin today with a question how many of you have done a home remodel project before maybe you've you've done a home improvement uh, project right Uh, probably many of us have done that right and uh, when you think about that you think back on that time and what was was that time a time that you would describe as being fun Um, You know, maybe you ripped out a uh, bathroom, you ripped out a bedroom, and you put it back together. Maybe um, you added a sunroom, you refinished a basement. I want you to imagine once that you go to a friend's house. You drive over to a friend's house, you've never been to their house before, you're going there to drop something off. And you walk up to the door, and you knock on the door, and they come to the door, and they answer, and they say, hey, why don't you come in and hang out with us for a few minutes? And so you go in the door and when you walk in this house, you see this nice open floor plan. You see this beautiful kitchen, something like this first picture that we have here this morning. And uh, you, you, you've, you know that they haven't lived there in this house for very long. And so you say, um, was this kitchen like this when you first moved in? And they say, no, we remodeled it. Just three little words, we remodeled it. But it doesn't take too long. You're not there for too long. And soon you are back in the driveway. You get back in the car. You drive away. Is there anything that was left out in those three little words? We remodeled it. Maybe like three months of pain. Three months of ripping everything apart. Three months of not having your kitchen and having to do uh, your dishes in the bathtub. Maybe perhaps even you had pizza boxes and all sorts of wrappers from food that uh, it was so much that it was maybe illegal to have that much stuff around your house. Well, we have a picture of what that uh, kitchen looked like beforehand. And what you see here is, uh, it's not very good lighting, but there's some uh, lime green paint on the walls. There's trash all over the floors and the counters and the sink. There's a hole in the ceiling, the, there's this fan that's broken in the kitchen. You have appliances, uh, the only appliances that you have there are the, the microwave, and it's sitting on the floor, and speaking of the floor, the, the floor is this yellowed linoleum. I mean, the storage door that's on the side there, there is no storage door um, uh, separating uh, the, the kitchen from the storage, I mean, there, there's no door there. And so when these people moved in, they ripped everything out because they had watched HGTV and they wanted something new. They wanted something nice. I mean, they had been watching Property Brothers one too many times. They had, uh, they had been fans of Fixer Uppers with Chip and Joanna Gaines. And, and after watching these TV shows, they thought that it would be really easy. They thought that this looked really fun to do this renovation project. But three weeks into the renovation, the word fun is not the first word that comes to their minds. Discouraged, depressed, divorce, homicide. Those are words that come come to your mind, right? But not the word fun. But this whole process that uh, goes from getting from this mess to something that's nice and new in this modern kitchen is described in just three words. We renovated it. And this is usually how we communicate. We communicate with shorthand. Uh, We we leave out a lot of the details. I was thinking about this the other day, and I was on the internet, and I saw this next picture of uh, Virginia college men's basketball team. You know, college basketball tournament, March Madness. It's always something that uh, our family really loves. Uh, We love the competition. Maybe like many of you, we filled out brackets, each one of our family members did, and we wanted to show who knows the most about college basketball, or at least try to guess who's going to be the winner. Now, none of us in our family actually picked Virginia to win, but... um, In this picture, you have these guys, and they are smiling. There is confetti falling from the sky. These guys are cheering. They're holding up this trophy. You look at this picture, and you say, oh, Virginia won the national championship. Virginia won the national championship. Just five words. Five words representing the months and even years of training. Five words that represent this college basketball tournament this particular year, 2019, where coming into the tournament, Virginia had to overcome this very disappointing year from last year. They were the number one seed last year, and they were the first team in all of basketball history to be a number one seed and lose to the worst team in the tournament. During this year's March Madness, Virginia was losing at the end of one of their games, and they had to hit a last-second shot just to get into the Final Four. They get into the Final Four, and there's this crazy play that takes place where they're down by two, and this guy on their team takes a last-second shot at the buzzer, and he gets fouled. He has to hit all three free throws. And he does, and they win the game. They go to the championship game, and they have to go into overtime in order to win it. This uh, all happens, this exhausting couple of weeks happens for them, this roller coaster ride of emotions. And yet, at the end of the game, they're all able to hold up this trophy and get a few pictures together as a team. And this is all summed up with these words Virginia won the national championship. Which leaves out all of the complicated parts. It's kind of shorthand, it's a summary, and that's what we often do when we speak about things. It's also what we do with the cross. We say things like, you know, the cross makes all the difference. We say, Jesus died on the cross, I'm forgiven because of the cross. And what we're doing there is in saying the cross is we're using kind of shorthand that we're thinking uh, when we think of these uh, image of these two boards that are tacked together, lifted up in the air, we, we call it the cross and we use shorthand for all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the accusations that are going on there at the cross. As we continue our study in the road to the cross this morning, we are going to be looking at just four hours, or 12 hours rather, 12 hours worth of time. That at six o'clock in the morning, Jesus is dragged into the presence of the highest ranking political official in the country, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. And then he's thrown to some bored Roman soldiers who are going to have some fun with him. And then he's tacked on these boards and he is suspended in the air and he is mocked for six hours. He is going to die at three o'clock in the afternoon. By six o'clock in the evening, that same evening, roughly 12 hours after the time when he is led into Pontius Pilate, a stone is then rolled in front of the grave and his followers are left absolutely in dismay. All of these things are events that we talk about when we say the cross. The cross. We're using shorthand and even every now and then what we need to do is we need to kind of pause and we need to think through this story. We need to see this story as it unfolds. And we don't want to become immune to what has happened there. If you have a Bible with you this morning or you can grab one in the pew rack in front of you, open that Bible app. But I want to invite you to join me in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. My goal today as my goal has been throughout this series is that we would get reacquainted with Jesus. That as we get reacquainted with Jesus that our affections for him might grow. Today, as we come to Mark chapter 15, we're going to see Jesus in three separate scenes. And as we follow him through these scenes, we need to absorb, feel, listen, soak in, and grow in our affections for the one who came for us. Scene number one is the governor. The governor's name is a man by the name of Pontius Pilate, and he doesn't live in Jerusalem. Instead, he lives on the coast. He lives at a place that was named after one of the Caesars, and it was called Caesarea. Caesarea. And at festival time, what Pontius Pilate and would do is this time of the Passover, he would pack up his things, he would travel to Jerusalem. from the coast, and he would occupy what we might call the governor's mansion. We have a bird's-eye view picture of what this mansion looked like, built in the the generation before Pontius Pilate by King Herod the Great. And it's believed that what Pilate would do is he came to Jerusalem for festivals like this, and he would stay in uh, Herod's mansion, in Herod's palace. This was a massive facility, and Jesus was led to this facility at 6 o'clock in the morning to be tried by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Now, when Jesus arrives, we have to understand something, that the story is already underway. He is in rough shape. He's already been worked over quite a bit during the night. We read last week in the previous section that Jesus was interrogated by these religious Jewish leaders. It ended up that uh, they blindfolded him. They put this blindfold over his face and then they start punching him. One after another after another. And as they're punching him, they're crying out, Hey, you're a prophet. Why don't you prophesy? Why don't you tell us who hit you? And then it says that the guards took their turn and they beat him up too. And so as Jesus is led before Pontius Pilate, his hands are tied and he looks like an inmate. His face is swollen. Maybe his eyes are even swollen shut. And Pilate can tell that he has taken quite a beating during the night. During the night, the Jewish religious leaders had got him to confess that he was the Messiah, that he was the coming king of Israel. And if they went to Pontius Pilate and said to him, hey, Jesus claims to be the king of Israel, well, that wouldn't really mean all that much to Pilate. And so they have to kind of reshape these accusations a little bit in order that they could get the attention of this Roman governor. And so the way that they reshape it is that they say, well, you know, not only... Is he claiming to be our Messiah, but he is claiming to be the king. He is claiming that he is going to overthrow Rome. He's going to come and overthrow Tiberius Caesar, and he's going to take his position. And so Pilate asks Jesus in Mark chapter 15 and verse 2 there, you see this. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Are you claiming to usurp the authority of Rome? And then come the accusations. Well-crafted accusation after accusation after accusation. Mark chapter 15 and verse 3 words it this way. It says, and the chief priest accused him of many things. And so they say things like, you know what? It started all the way up in Galilee and now he has this massive following. And we have reason to believe that he is trying to lead this tax revolt. He's telling people, don't pay your taxes to Rome. Pilate looks at Jesus and Jesus just stands there. No response to this accusation. Almost a week ago, he rode in on a donkey and the people of Galilee were screaming out, Hosanna, God save us. And they were calling for him and they were saying, Hey, this is the son of David. David was the king and and Jesus is sitting there on this donkey and, and they're claiming that he's the king and Jesus doesn't do anything to stop them. And Pilate looks over at Jesus and Jesus just stands there. He doesn't respond. Uh, he's claiming that he's going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. The, the temple that was built by Herod the Great. And, and he's going to rebuild that temple. He's claiming authority over this country. He's claiming authority over us. He's claiming authority over you, Pilate. And Pilate looks at Jesus and Jesus just stands there. It, Pilate doesn't know what to do with all of this. In verse 4, we read this, it says, And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges are, are, are they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so, so that Pilate was amazed. You see, part of the problem that we have is that in our day and age, we have this lengthy, drawn-out judicial system here in, in the United States. And, and so it might start by appearing before a judge, and there's an indictment that's made. And then there is a trial date that is set. And then uh, months or weeks later, that you'll have this uh, trial that comes. And it takes a while for the trial to, to, to happen. And then after the trial, you have a, uh, another date down the road that's set for sentencing. And so there is this multi-stage process today in our culture of uh, what we experience in the judicial system. But Jesus is before Pilate at 6 o'clock in the morning and he will be hanged on the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning. He is on trial for his life. Pilate has been here before. He's had other people who were in his presence being accused of things similar to this. And in situations like this, people were begging. They were pleading. They were groveling at his feet. They were doing anything possible to prove that they were innocent. But Jesus just stands there while these accusations are being made. And basically, he says nothing. And Pilate says, well, aren't you going to say anything? Jesus just keeps his mouth shut. Pilate is amazed at the composure, and he knows that this is a setup. Now, this is quite amazing here, but 700 years before this, there was a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesies in um, uh, chapter 53 and verse 7, and he says this. He says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that, was that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Jesus knows what he's doing here. He knows the prophecies. He knows what's going to happen to him. Mark's readers, as they're familiar with the Old Testament, would read this account about Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate and this image of Isaiah 53, this prophecy from 700 years before Jesus had even come, would come back flooding into their minds. It's probably 7 o'clock in the morning now. Some people are beginning to gather outside of Pilate's estate. They were there for a reason and they were there because there was this custom at major festival holidays where they could persuade the governor out of the goodness of his heart to release an inmate who had been convicted of something. And so there is this crowd that comes. And they want to appeal for someone to be released. And so Pilate's like, well, great. You know, I have this guy over here and uh, he is the king of the Jews. In fact, if you don't want him, well, I've got this other guy. He's a really bad guy. I mean, he's his name is Barabbas. He has been and led a rebellion. He, he has uh, people have been killed when he led that rebellion. So you choose, you make up your mind, which one do you want me to release? This king of the Jews, or, uh, and Pilate knew that the king of the Jews, Jesus, was innocent, but he says, the king of the Jews, or this character Barabbas. Right about now, the religious leaders begin to work their way through the crowd, and they say, hey, you better call for Barabbas. And and these are, are some of the most powerful people in the entire country, and so you better listen to them. And so they asked for Barabbas. That's what we see beginning in verse 11 there. It says, but the chief priests stir up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Now, there are a lot of options of things that he could do here. You could, he says, well, what should I do with this man then? What should I do with this man who was beaten up last night? Maybe you get a restraining order against him so that he has to stay 20 miles away from the city of Jerusalem so that, 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 that he can't mess with any of the officials and the authorities there. Or you could maybe banish him to some rock island out in the middle of the Mediterranean somewhere. Or you could uh, beat him within an inch of his life. And so Pilate says, well, what do you want me to do with this guy? Verse 13. And they cry out again, crucify him. You know what we want you to do? We want you to strip him naked. We want you to nail him to boards. We want you to lift him up in the air so that we can stand there and watch him die slowly as the hours pass by, that as his life drips out of him one drop at a time, we want to watch that. We want want you to do that to him. And I think Pilate here had to have been stunned in this moment. You look there at verse 13. He says this, Why? 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 What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I want you to just notice how few words Mark here uses to describe how Jesus was beaten. He just says, And having uh scourged Jesus, having scourged Jesus. I mean, this is a very intense process. It would have involved these Roman soldiers. It would have involved blinding pain. And Mark covers this in a very non-emotional phrase. And he says, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now there's a statement here that I want us to focus on for just a minute. And it's this. Wishing to satisfy the crowds. Wishing to satisfy the crowds. Pilate is uh, caving into the pressure here. And, and I think that if we're all honest, it, that if we can think back and look back on times in our lives where we've done things that we should not have done because we caved into the pressure from other people. That we found ourselves pretending to be someone that we weren't because of the pressure of other people around us. This can happen to a 6-year-old, it can happen to a 16-year-old, it can happen to a 36-year-old, it can happen to a 66-year-old, pretending to be someone that you're not because of the pressure. It's the pressure of those around you that uh, can sometimes cause you to maybe spend more money than you ought to, spend money that you have no business spending in order to keep up with people that you have no business trying to keep up with. And maybe you can look back on seasons in your life when you say, "Well, why? Why did I ever do that? I mean, why did I buy all of those things? Well, because I caved into the pressure." People wander their way into drug and alcohol addictions for all kinds of reasons, but one of the reasons is because the people around them are saying, "Why don't you come on, man? I mean, everyone else is doing it. Come on, it's not that big of a deal. Just join us." And there's all this pressure to be like everyone else, and so you just cave. Sometimes uh, we get driven by pressure that's no longer even around us. Maybe you've had a parent, maybe you've had someone who is close to you, have this habit of saying, you know what, you're not going to amount to anything in life. And now you're 50 years old, and they're not even around anymore, and, and you're still trying to prove them wrong guess what I'm trying to say is that it's so easy to look down on Pilate and just say, wow, I mean, what a jerk. can't believe that he would ever do something like this. I wouldn't do something like that. But I think it's good for us to put ourselves with Pilate. To say, oh yeah, I've done that too. It's a position of humility. It gives us an opportunity to respond to grace. Because we realize that Pilate is not the only person who is radically flawed. Pilate caves to the pressure, he has Jesus beaten, he, he hands him over to be crucified, and so you would expect that the next thing that Mark would talk about is the crucifixion. But that, that's not what he talks about, the crucifixion is not next. There's this kind of interlude that takes place in the second part of the story here. And scene number two is in this story is the soldiers, the soldiers. And I believe these soldiers were stationed inside this estate of Herod's palace, And they they gather all of the soldiers that are stationed there. And these accusations that had been raised against Jesus is that he was the king. And so these soldiers are going to have some fun with that. Follow along there in uh, verse 16 and following it says, And the soldiers led him, Jesus, away inside the palace, that is the governor's quarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns they put, him, they put it on him. Now they're playing dress up here with Jesus. Verse 18. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking him on the head with a reed. And spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. You now it's interesting to me how little is written about this incident. This is pure humiliation here. They're mocking him. Hail, king of the Jews. They take this rod and they start hitting him on the head, which would have hurt in and of itself, but what's on his head is this crown of thorns. And every time that they hit him on the head, this crown of thorns starts going deeper and deeper into his skull. Has anyone in your life ever gone out of their way to make you feel small, to humiliate you? Has anybody ever said something? wrote something, posted something to make you just feel humiliated and foolish. If you've ever been through something like that, maybe you've had the boldness to turn and, and, and look towards the heavens and just say, God, you know, do you ever have any idea? Do you have any idea what I'm going through? Do you have any idea how this feels? Well, the answer that comes back is, as a matter of fact, I do. Two powerful points that come out of this is, first... That when you pray to God he understands your pain. He understands your pain. Because when Jesus entered this world the creator in human form. He traveled through the entire human experience with all of its ugliness. All of its awfulness. Jesus had the whole human experience. And so when you feel discouragement. When you feel pain and hurt. Just remember that Jesus knows what that's like. So Jesus understands your pain. But secondly, and I think that this is the point of the passage, and that is this. Do you understand his? You see, we come to this passage not simply to remind ourselves uh, that that, uh, he is connected to our pain. But as we read this passage and as we reflect on this passage, we also need to connect with his pain. When we get Jesus, when you, when you get Jesus, you get someone who was willingly humiliated in order to get you. When you get Jesus, you get someone who uh, voluntarily faced humiliation in order to get you. And this is part of what we need to understand when we say those two little words. The cross. The cross. It's just shorthand for the scorn and the shame. An interesting thing happens here. The story picks up and you see something like half a dozen details that we we pick up really quickly here. And it's like Mark is kind of retelling the story and he's just telling it really fast. And he's saying, hey, this is where it happened. This is when it happened. This is how it happened. And he gives us these details really quickly here. We're told that Jesus is led out to the place uh, called Golgotha, known as the place of the skull. It's there that he's going to be executed. He's physically exhausted to the point where he can't even carry his own cross. And so they recruit this man, uh, Simon of Cyrene, and he's going to carry the cross instead of Jesus. Uh, Jesus gets there. They're they're about to nail these nails in his arms, in his hands. And and they offer him this drugged drink. It's called uh, wine mixed with, with myrrh. And it was meant to take the edge off a little bit. Well, Jesus realizes what this drink is, and so he refuses it. He is going to go through the crucifixion, but he's not going to go through the crucifixion all drugged out. We read that there was this plaque that is put over his head uh, there on the cross, and it says, King of the Jews. We read that it's 9 o'clock in the morning. This whole thing with the soldiers and Pilate and this beating all takes place between uh, 6 a.m. and 9 a.m., we read that he's executed between two criminals, two robbers. And that day, he's just one of the crooks. The actual crucifixion is described in three words by Mark here in verse 25. And it says, they crucified him. But then we read that there were these soldiers. And the soldiers begin to roll dice to, uh, to see who's going to get his clothing. Because one of the perks of being part of the execution squad was that when this poor person is stripped naked and they're, they're being crucified, you're going to get some of his clothes. Now, we might not connect with this all that much, but I want you to imagine for a moment just a, a killing that was taking place in our day. And maybe somebody is grabbed and they're, 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 these guys grab this guy and they take him, they drag him into some dark alley and they start beating him. He's about to die. He's going to die. But before they actually kill him, they they stop for a moment and they say, Well, who's going to get the phone? And who's going to get the hat? And who's going to get the coat? And who's going to get the shoes? This person is about to die. And that's kind of what happens with Jesus. That his clothes are divided up among the soldiers there. As we go through the details of the crucifixion, I don't want you to miss one small and yet very important detail here, and that is that this is God. The creator of the universe enters the planet to give himself for broken humanity. And in this, we see the humility, we see the generosity of our Savior. Friends, this is the cross. It's good for us to take time to pause, to remind ourselves what goes on behind the symbol of the cross, What happens behind this image of the cross? So scene number one was with the governor. Scene number two was with the soldiers. Scene number three is with the spectators. A crucifixion is a spectator sport. A lot of times we picture Jesus and he's hanging on this cross that's maybe high up in the air, kind of far away from everyone else, and and, and the people are are, are, uh, standing far off. Or maybe you picture that he's up on this hill that's far away from from everybody else walking by. Most likely, though, that's not how it happened. And Jesus is lifted up just barely off of the ground. He would have been eye level with most of the other people who were walking by. They, they, what they did is they did these crucifixions at major intersections. They, they didn't do this on some faraway hill outside of the city. But they did it just outside of the city. And people who were passing by could see all of this taking place. This would be like having a crucifixion over on 95th and, and Western. This major intersection, you know. The purpose was to be an example to anyone who might think about maybe committing a crime. You know, if you had some uh, idea in your mind of maybe committing a crime, you'd think about this and you'd think twice about it. But there was also this idea that uh, if that person had hurt anyone, this was a chance for them to have their moment. And so if someone had killed someone in your family, a family member of yours, and they're being executed, you could come to them and you could whisper anything that you wanted to whisper in their ears. You know, you could scream at them, you could spit on them, you could taunt them, you could do whatever you wanted to them for hours. Crucifixion was horribly painful, but as this crucifixion is described here, there is very little time spent describing the physical horror and the blinding pain that Jesus experienced. What's talked about most here is the taunting that takes place. And maybe that was because the people in the first century, they would have already been familiar with crucifixion. I mean, they had seen crucifixion happen many, many times before, and so they they maybe didn't need it explained to them. Mark doesn't give us a a whole lot of detail about the physical aspects of the crucifixion, and maybe that's why. But the spectators begins with people who just happen to be walking by, and we read there in verse 29, And those who passed by derided him. Wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who, destroy, who, who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. These people, they're just passing by. They're, they're residents, possibly, of Jerusalem. They, they're walking by and they say, Hey, you're supposed to be the rescuer of people, but why don't you start by rescuing yourself? And then there's another group that forms and they're a little bit more organized. They're a little bit more formal. And they're there for a longer period of time. Verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saves other, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that, that uh, we may see and believe. And these people are like, hey, prove it. Prove that you're the Christ. Come down off the cross if you're so big. Then, at the end of verse 32, it says that even those who were crucified with him began also to revile him. What's recorded here in this story has a heavy emphasis on the taunting, the belittling, the ridicule, the shame that Jesus experienced. It was humiliating in every possible way. Peter, the guy who had three times said, Yeah, I don't even know the guy, after following Jesus for three years. Well, after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter becomes a leader in the church and he writes this letter to believers who were picked on and persecuted because they were followers of Jesus. And Peter was coaching these young believers on how to react when someone comes up to you in the marketplace and puts their finger in your face and, and starts belittling you and humiliating you and mocking you because you're a follower of Jesus. And, and what Peter did is he points them right back to Jesus and, and how he reacted on the cross. And Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. It says, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What was Jesus doing on the cross when he was getting mocked and taunted and heckled? Well, he was saying, hey, God, I trust you. Father, I trust you. I trust you. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And the reason why Peter is talking about this here is uh, certainly to point out uh, Jesus' behavior, but more importantly, to coach these young Christians, these Christians who are being persecuted, how they ought to respond. In following their savior. What Peter is saying is. You know just because someone teases you. Doesn't mean that you need to tease them back. Just because someone uh, despises you. Doesn't mean that you need to despise them in return. Just because someone screams at you. Doesn't mean that you need to scream back at them. And friends this is revolutionary. This way of living could revolutionize your home. It could revolutionize your workplace. It could revolutionize your relationship with your neighbors. That the extreme invasion of the grace of God at work in your life to respond graciously when someone attacks you could ruin a perfectly good argument. You know, it's only possible through the work of Jesus Christ in your life to be able to respond like this. And I'm not saying that you're supposed to be a wimp. I'm not talking about wimping out here. But what I'm talking about is not attacking someone else when you're being attacked. Jesus is on the cross at nine o'clock in the morning, at noon, some really weird things start happening as the sky turns this strange, unnatural darkness. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, Jesus is very much alone. God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the people standing there uh, by Jesus hear him crying out to God, and they think that he's actually calling for Elijah. And so someone goes and gets him something to drink, but the people who are standing there are like, no, 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 don't interrupt him. Let's see if Elijah can save him. It seems like the taunting had started in the middle of the night. It was going at 9 o'clock in the morning. The taunting is still going on at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then it says in verse 37, "And Jesus uttered uh, uttered a loud voice and breathed his last. Mark doesn't tell us what it is that he yelled. Um, the, The other gospel writers, some of them do tell us that he yelled out, It is finished. And it was over. He was gone. You know, Jesus had faced these taunts all day long. If you're the rescuer, then why don't you start by rescuing yourself? But you know, if he had rescued himself, we would not have been rescued. And we're reminded again about that prophecy from Isaiah chapter 53 and verse uh, 7 where it's uh, verse 5. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The fact that he didn't rescue himself made it possible for him to rescue us. He dies at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At six o'clock in the evening, there is this, uh, he's laid in the tomb, and there's this stone that's rolled in front of it. And for all of this, all of these events that have taken place, we use just a, a, a little word, a, a, a symbol, and we say the cross, right? The cross makes all the difference. The, cra- the, the cross is where I, I find forgiveness. Because of the cross, everything has changed for me. Jesus died on the cross. And yet this morning, we've only tapped into just a little bit of what actually took place in these events surrounding the cross. There are words that we use to describe what took place on the cross. Words like grace and forgiveness. Words like mercy and redemption. Well, the author of Hebrews, he uses a a strange word to describe what Jesus did at the cross. And this is Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. And I want to just end with this. That we, what it says, that we are looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That Jesus endured the cross, he endured the taunting because of the joy that was set before him. You think about that. What joy is he talking about? Joy in honoring his father, God. Joy in fulfilling the will of God, his father. But I think also there was joy in securing a people for his own possession. People like you, people like me. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus went through all of this. And and, uh, he did it so that he could get us. So that we could get him. While There are many things in this world that will pass away. There are many things in this world that can be taken away from us. There are many things in this world that don't last, but He is something that cannot be taken away. He is something that will last forever. And so as we see Him on the road to the cross, may our affections and our gratitude for Him continue to grow.